You are listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us.net and all of the shows on it are 100% subscriber supported. Please consider becoming a subscriber to one of us.net. Keep the site and all of our great shows going and get some terrific bonus content as well. Hey, we're back with more digital noise. Woo-hoo. Me and Aaron, we got a stack for you. Yeah, we do, and it was uh, troublesome. It's interesting. We we had some really good stuff, and we had <coughs> a certain amount of kind of dull stuff. Well, yeah, we'll go with that. Yeah, uh, along with uh, what is it? And I'll announce it when we get there. The worst sound editing I've ever experienced in my entire life. Ooh, I can't wait to hear yeah. what you're talking about specifically. But let's just jump right in with our first copy, uh, our first film, which is honestly a movie I've been dying to revisit for years now, which is The Illusionist, which came out in 2006. For same year as uh, Christopher Nolan's The Prestige came out. Yes. And everyone was always like, you know, bottlenecking the, like, like versus these two, <coughs> which one's better? And everyone's like, oh, clearly The Prestige. And I was the lone voice. Nope, nope. I, 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 saw, I saw The Illusionist in theaters, uh, actually... One of the first dates I ever went on with my wife was uh, was the illusionist? was the illusionist with one of our friends, and I kind of preferred it. And it, it's actually what inspired me to have an idea that I still wish would happen: is a film festival of famous movies that have like head headbutted, mm-hmm. where like you know we have Deep the Star illusionist Six. and the prestige, Deep, Deep Star, Star Six, Six and the Leviathan, yeah. the Raid and Dread, yeah. like all those movies that came out the same year that are the exact same movie, basically. <laughs> They're so <laughs> similar you can't not realize that they were supposed to. Be. One was clearly heavily influenced but, by the release of the. I was also really excited to see this because I don't know that I've seen it since theaters. Yeah, I have not. I've always meant to go back and see it. And it hit on a lot of very strong notes for me right off the bat. First off, it is, I like movies about magicians, like real actual magicians. I'm not talking Harry Potter, but like, mm-hmm. you know, like the idea Illusions. of the craft. Whereas I'm not a fan of real life ones so much. I'm like, they're fine, but not really my thing. But movies about the craft of it, I think are really interesting. Uh, I like con movies a whole lot, and this is like a backwards surprise. It's a con movie. (laughs) Movies about the craft are especially good when they never go, it's real magic. Right. Like, that so was the biggest time, problem with the prestige. Yeah. The, well, the prestige, the, the now you see me movies. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like with, with now all, you see me, that first now you see movie is great until it turns around and goes, Oh yeah, by the way, it's real magic. Yeah. And the prestige, I had the exact same problem with where it was like, they're setting you up for this whole thing where yes, it's all like using the craft of illusion until they do what I thought was extremely lazy, which they're like, no, it's science. It's like, yeah, but it's not. <laughs> Tesla, nice. David Bowie is Tesla. It, it's, it's magic science. It's Marvel science. Yeah, it, exactly. From Asgard. Exactly. I was like, okay, <laughs> this, this is, is kind of a cheap plot element and way to wrap things up. The Illusionist does not do that. Albeit, I'll give it that some of its illusionary tricks are very far-fetched to how well, they would work. Like, so when I went into this movie, I, I had to take a step back because my memory of this movie is that they were doing what they did with Dracula, where... 
They were only using filming techniques that were available at the time. Uh, all the tricks were real, which, well, that's not, not real true. on screen. But well, yeah. like, they definitely use CG, and there's yeah. definitely some more advanced modern filming techniques, but it it is surprising how amazingly well the movie feels like something that would have been made a hundred years ago. Yeah. Agreed. It has almost a malaise, yeah. like, feel to it to some degree. <clears throat> there's there's something about this that feels so old-fashioned, even with the wipes and everything, that I, well, that and I really liked. It's understated. It's got a narrator who kind of explains some of the core concepts of the plot in the beginning. It feels very literary. Yes. Uh, so Edward Norton plays Eisenheim the Illusionist, although when we meet him, he's uh, Edward Abramovich, who's just a kid, <laughs> who's played by young Aaron Johnson in one of her first film, <laughs> film roles, uh, which I did not remember at all. Uh, and we see him, he has kind of a, he's getting into stage magic, and there's like, I love the narrators kind of describing, like, there's a lot of myth about how he first got into magic, like, he met this magician on the road who taught him some tricks or something, and Which like... Is cool, because they, they show you, like, four different versions of how it could be, Yeah, and the scene just keeps changing without the cover, the camera even moving. Yeah. It's a great sequence. It, it is. And, uh... It doesn't take too long. It just it's there to establish. Here's how this kid got into magic. Uh, he, he had a meet cute with a girl who was out of his his uh cla- his cast range. Everyone's like, you can't be with her because she she's too rich for you. Uh, and then they are forcibly separated. It's so, really the meet cute. Like yeah. that's kind of the core that drives the rest of the movie. So for, flash two years later, uh, Edward Norton, the older version of this character, which they don't flat out say, but it's safely assumed that this is the same person, which it is, uh, is now this magician who's come onto the scene who is wowing audiences with his incredible stage magic, like groundbreaking stage magic. So much so that the police are immediately curious to see if he is breaking the rules of God. Uh, uh, said person being Paul Giamatti, who ha- who is really playing an interesting version of this character that could have been quite dull in another actor's hands because he plays it as someone who is, well, he's very beholden to the, the uh, Rufus Sewell, who's the crown prince, who's kind of a very crown prince douchebag He's very Rufus Sewell. Yeah. (laughs) And and who, he basically has to do whatever this guy says. And at first he's just like, he is utterly fascinated by this because he is a detective, this policeman, not Rufus Sewell. And he's like, how do you do these tricks? I really want to know. And Edward Norton is, is, as magicians will be, is like, yeah, I'm not going to tell you that. (laughs) I, I like there's a line where Edward Norton just, or... Either him or the manager just basically outright says, well, you're just the most corrupt cop in town, right? He's like, yeah, I am, but I'm not entirely corrupt. I'm also good at my job, (laughs) so... But everything gets complicated when it turns out that Crown Prince uh, Leopold Rufus Sewell's intended bride-to-be is Jessica Biel, which is the older version of the young girl that... that he, Edward Norton was in love with when he was young. And so there's a thing where Rufus Sewell was like, oh, I've heard about this guy. I'm going to go see him on stage, which is a big deal for Norton and his manager, played very nicely by Ed, Eddie Marson in an early sort of prominent role for Marson. Yeah. Um, and he's like, can I have a volunteer? And it's her. And there's this thing where we know Norton kind of knows. And the question is whether or not she knows. And quickly, this turns into a situation where the prince is like, okay, this guy, we got to get rid of this guy. And before you know it, uh, 
everything gets much more complicated when something happens where it very much appears right off the bat. I mean, we, as we see it on screen that, uh, he, she rejects the prince and he murders her, but he's the prince. So princes don't then generally get taken down for murder. Just saying they have a lot of defenses in their way in this case, Paul Giamatti. And I think this is the most interesting part of the film where Giamatti is dedicated to what he does as a job, realizes what ultimately his allegiance is supposed to be, but at the same time, the movie is more about him than it is about Norton in some ways, because it's about him trying to come to terms with his respect for what the law should be versus this forced allegiance to the prince. He's the one who has the big arc, too, because Edward Norton is there, but because he's the he's the magician and he's the one who, as you said, is involved in whatever chicanery is going around behind the scenes, by the very nature of that, you don't really know what's going on with him. And so it's all through Giamatti, who, thank God, it's Giamatti, because he really shows how good he is in this movie. He's amazing Because it's, it's such an understated, quiet performance, but it is enthralling. As you can see him going, you know, let's be honest, everything is pointing to the prince... But I really don't want him to be uh, the one who did it. Let me try and find any way for it not to be him. While at the same time, having that grudging respect for Edward Norton's character. Well, he's aggressively coming after him, too, and trying to find a way. But Norton Norton is playing that character who's the smartest guy in the room. You know, he's one of those guys in any given, like, con movie or whatever it is. He's that dude that the moment you know he's in trouble, he's already thought eight steps ahead of this situation. And the... I realized that my memory of this movie is as good as it was, or or is accurate about how I feel about it today, when there's a sequence when Edward Norton gets seen with uh, the love interest, and Paul Giamatti kind of has a, look man, back off conversation, and he walks in and he's like, I'm going to ask you a question, and it's going to seem rude, and seem forward, but I promise it's not. (laughs) And the way that little conversation goes off is kind of delightful to watch the two play off each other. That's that whole, I'm going to ask you a question and I don't want you to be offended. And you go, I can't promise I'm not going to be offended until I hear the question. Well, it's like, like, no, no, that's an offensive question. Well, yes, it is. But alternatively, I could just assume the answer is yes and arrest you. So it's up to you. It's a lovely interplay between these characters. Uh, I, I don't. I didn't, with this revisit, come to it quite as strongly as I did the first time. And partially that's just because I know everything that's going to happen. And part of the fun of this movie is watching it play out with all the little reveals along the way. And when you already know the big, long game that's going on, take something away from that journey. But it's so really well shot. It's Neil Berger who's filming this thing, who is, who is an excellent director. I think it's Neil Berger. Am I wrong here? Yeah, Neil Berger who, who's doing this, uh, who, who is a director who's done some really interesting films that I've liked quite a bit, including, uh, well, I want to say specifically another film that, much like The Illusionist, is kind of like a, a little cult movie that not everybody loved, but I loved the shit out of, Limitless. Yes. Yeah. It's real world superheroes. Yeah. It was one of those. I was like, this belongs in the same package as Hannah and Unbreakable and the Encounter. <laughs> I want to see an Avengers with those guys oh, that together. Would be so good. <laughs> like, so I think the reason the Prestige got all the business is because it's just such a bigger movie. Oh yeah. Like that's the thing. I, I ended up really still enjoying this movie, but even having said that, it's. It's a really quiet, calm film. It never really gets loud. It never really gets intense. 
It's really just watching the interplay of the actors. Yeah, it's, and if that doesn't appeal to you, then eh, this movie might be too I mean, slow. I don't. It's not dry though. It's it's always it's consistently <laughs> clever, and it's regularly doing things that are eye candy. Like whenever there's the tricks involved when you're watching his stage magic stuff, you're as well going, "How in the fuck did he do that?" Yeah. You know. Which, to be fair, if anything, if I'm comparing it versus the magic, which is the excuse in the prestige. The stuff he's doing here is not plausible on the whole. Well, I, I, say, I, I like that. So, without spoiling it, the big emotional payoff at the end game, both is kind of a little bit about how he performed, about how everything kind of lays out. But really, it's ultimately about how one particular trick was performed. And I just kind of like that it was that yeah. little small thing. It brought it all kind of full circle in a way. Honestly, I, and I think... This might be just because there are so many not so great movies. This <laughs> might be my pick of the week. <laughs> um, I'm I, I'm looking down the list right now, and let's see. Um, I mean, there are other movies that, that I have a strong connection to, which we'll get. I'm into. I'm not giving this my pick of the week, but like this is the one that I think is legitimately the strongest. It's it's really good, and I think a lot of people missed this the first time around or saw it in the context of it being in competition with the Prestige, which no film should be thought of as being in competition with any other film. And I don't think I don't think today of this film as being in competition with you have to like one or the other. No. Yeah, I mean, and once again, I don't want to shit all over the prestige. I think it's a gorgeous movie that had some third act problems that really took me out of it. Yeah. Um, but I like this because it's always nothing about this really felt like it took me out of the movie. It, it feels much like a really good con film. Every piece seems perfectly laid yep. uh, to, to fit together. Everything comes back to, together. I, I really enjoy that aspect of it. So this new Blu-ray edition of it from 20th Century Fox has a all just EPK stuff. There's like four minutes on the making of. There's a minute and a half of je- interview with Jessica Biel. Uh, there's audio commentary with Neil Berger and then some trailers. So it's not a spectacular release of this thing. But... If you have not seen it, it's a perfect opportunity to go back and revisit it. And Limitless, too, because I didn't know Neil Berger did that. And now I know he did both. I have to track down his other movies. Oh, man. I I really love (laughs) Limitless. I'm just always... I wanted that television series to be good so bad, and it's not very good. I got three episodes in before I gave up. I was like, man, this is too TV. Did you you watch the pilot, at least? Yeah, I watched two episodes. (laughs) Yeah, and you were like, (laughs) I like my movie. I'm good with the movie. (laughs) I mean, I'll give them mad respect. They actually got... What's his face? Um... The lead from the movie, uh, I don't know, Star is Born. He, he's always going to be Will from Alias to me. Yeah, Will from, they got Will from Alias to actually play himself in it, but as sort of like a, like only in it once every four episodes or so type yeah. character. I was like, okay. All right, so next movie we're going to Arrow for a honestly odd movie in the history of Klaus Kinski, the actor. Uh, okay. Because Klaus Kinski doesn't generally play protagonists. Like, and there's a good reason for that. <laughs> He's a weird dude, man. He's a weird looking dude. His performances are weird. Even here in Double Face, you keep expecting him to turn out to secretly be the villain. Okay, thank because you. he's Klaus Kinski. I spent at least 80% of this movie going, when's so the shoe going to drop? Yeah, it's Klaus Kinski. Why would you put him in even, a movie unless he's the villain? Even in the final moments of the movie, I was like, so like, we're, we're going to find out it's him. There's right? going to be a lot. Is there a post credit scene? Like, like, this is all in his mind. <laughs> Something like that, right? But no. This is a 
hard to classify film even. Like, it's kind of giallo. It's it's, it's It's a kind of film noir. It it is a missing persons drama with the trappings of a giallo. Like, like they shoot it like a giallo. And it sounds like a giallo. And and they cast it like one. And a lot of the stuff from the American period of, like, hippie worship. Yeah. Of all those films that were, like, that came out of Peter Fonda and Dennis Hopper, where it was like, oh, dude, check out the hippies. They're crazy. And they like to dance naked and have... Concerts with cool bands like the Chocolate Watch Band with like crazy polka dot spotlights and shit. (laughs) What? Why is this in a Klaus Kinski film? It's a, it's an odd movie. And like when it starts, he plays John Alexander is his character's name. He's a a husband who's dealing with a wife, uh, Helen, played by Margaret Lee, who is very much out of control. Like, and seems to just kind of be a, a sociopath, actually. Yeah. She's just like, I'm going to do what I want to do, and I'm kind of bored with you now. She's a total... So, she's a total... Set you up for life. You're good. Now, I'm going to go off and leave you alone. She, she's day. horrible and mean to him at every opportunity, yeah. whereas he is trying to get through here. Uh, given that, it's not a convincing thing, because once again, it's Klaus Kinski. Him yeah. being a nice guy, we're never buying it. But, like... He's like, what am I supposed to do here? She's out of control, and she's having a lesbian affair with another woman, Um and we see that she takes the car and drives off in a huff. And before that, we saw the black-gloved hands playing with the mechanics well, of the car. She also has a conversation with him where she basically goes, I'm never going to see you again, really, but you're going to end up controlling the company. I've left it to you, so you're fine. Go away and don't ever talk to me again. Right. So uh, she drives off in a huff. Car explodes. She dies in the car, fire, huge fire. Cops are like, oh, that's horrible. Everyone's like, that's so terrible. Your wife died like that. But he gets in this, in the weirdest, like, why did this happen to set the plot going scenario? So local hippie chick shows up in his house, just breaks into his house. To take a shower. To take a shower. (laughs) And he's like, why are you here? But he ends up traipsing off with her and has a whole middle act of this film sequence of going to a bunch of hippie parties, uh, which, and- which is some of the most lurid hippie parties I've ever seen. Yeah. The camera's like, let's just look at these naked people for three minutes straight. It's cool. It's cool. They're like, and- drugs are cool. Naked people are cool. And at one point she's like, Oh, we're going to watch porn movies in the back, which why is he still hanging out with her is unclear. Uh, but he looks at it and he's like, Okay, so the girl who's in this video has a scar on the back of her neck, which is clearly the exact scar that my wife had on the back of her neck that I never knew where it came from. Once again, question mark. Yeah. Um, and he's like, wait a minute. That was my wife. And he's, and they're like, that's not possible because your wife is dead and has been for weeks, months, question mark. A couple of months but, at this point. Uh, and we just filmed this. So he's like, aha, my wife is secretly still alive. So he's on the trail. And I don't know, man. The movie, like, I'm not going to say it's not without merits. It's just so unclassifiable without ever going into being totally entertainingly weird. You you keep thinking it's going to explode into, like, weirdness on the level that that reaches camp levels. And it never quite hits that point. Like, I have to admit, I kind of had a good time watching this. 
Like, this feels like the kind of movie that you throw on in the background. It's just weird enough and just strange enough that you're like, okay, that'll hold my interest and that's fun. Let's drink some beer. <laughs> um, I, I will admit that I don't understand the ending of it. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, there's this big reveal and... I literally went, I don't know what that was or who that person was anymore. I, I just don't even know who they were in the plot. Uh, so what we have here in Extra Features, <clears throat> and like I said, if you're a Kinski completist, and I can't blame you if you are because he's one of the most fascinating, horrifying people who's ever worked in in in, in film acting, um, this is a movie you probably should see because it really is. I can't think of another Clint movie that Kinski played the good guy in. I think this might be it. I could be wrong. Uh, there was a Western where he was a good guy. Was we there? for the show. No, he was but, the but bad that was guy. super bleak. He was the bad guy. I could have sworn he was the good guy. No, in that. no, he was the bad guy in that too. Okay. Yeah. I'm telling you, man, he always plays the bad guy because he's a weird looking motherfucker. <laughs> uh, there's audio commentary uh, by uh, Tim Lucas, who I, I presume is a, a critic talking about this. Um, there's the many faces of Nora Orlandi, who is the composer. Uh, there's another piece, Seven Notes for a Murder, which is a 30 minute interview with Orlandi. Obviously, their release of this really focused on the score, which I, I don't think particularly stood out for me, yeah, but uh, there was a, there was a single French pop song that was actually really good. I liked that they kept going to. Oh, I know what you're talking about. And yeah. then the score otherwise was functional. Yeah. Uh, there's the terrifying Dr. Freda, which is a video essay by critic Amy Simmons looking at the director's whole career and uh, saying that maybe he had more of an influence than people actually give him credit for. There's some image galleries from the German press book, promotional materials, and the Italian promotional materials, and then some original trailers and an insert booklet. I mean, once again, Arrow puts together a solid package for a film all but no one cares about, which I think is fantastic because sometimes they do those movies are the ones for me. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> like for all that I thought this movie was okay, it, it's still worthy of watching to me. It's far from that level of why did you put this out, Arrow? True. So our next film is a newer film called Maze. Uh, this is based loosely on true events that took place in Ireland in 1983 in a really super secure prison that was called Maze that was specifically used to house a lot of the Irish Republican Army. In the 80s, this was the the war that the IRA was launching was all but com- actually a war. Well, I mean, it, obviously the British tried to play off as terrorism, but the, the truth is in retrospect, we look back on all of this and go – yeah, but you guys really were being dicks here, too. Correct me so. if I'm wrong. Like, th- doesn't this take place, like, two weeks after the events of that um, James... Not James Dean, but the movie Hunger? I don't know. Because, like, I-, I know that that movie was all about the IRA hunger strike, and they keep referencing back to that. Yeah, they talk about there being a hunger, hunger strike that just failed because the people died of hunger, and, the-, and the-, the guards in this prison did nothing to stop that from happening. Which, you know, I mean, the more you read... I would lo- actually really enjoy, if anyone has any recommendations for a true, really great, enjoyable book about this whole period of time. I would love to read it. Agreed. Because when I was watching this, I, it was one of those movies that I have Wikipedia pulled up and every Mm -hmm. like half, every 30 minutes or so I'd pause it and be like, Oh, okay. That's interesting. I mean, it's a fascinating period of time with like a group that was like, like 
doing what well, by any definition are, are considered to be like sort of whether freedom fighter or terrorist acts. And, and it's actually incredibly prescient coming out now because the, one of the big issues with Brexit uh, is that depending on how that happens, we could be put back into a situation that existed when this stuff was going on where like, Oh yay. There's going to be another war between Ireland and Britain. Right. Uh, one of many things that could yes. go wrong there. So this follows an inmate, Larry, played by Tom Vaughn uh, Lawler, who kind of has a grudging friendship with a guard that slowly grows over the movie where you're like, okay, I was actually more invested in it being a real friendship than what we quickly clear is clear his only reason for even setting this up in the first place, which is... I'm trying to help the IRA from the inside, Which, but like he has a relationship with this guard played by Barry Ward. That's like a certain degree of trust is building from it. In the meantime, we see that he's talking to the other more fervent I- IRA members in there who at first doubt his commitment to sparkle motion. And <laughs> then uh, eventually realize that like he's setting up a thing for an opportunity for pe- for them to get out of to break out of prison and that sounds really interesting unfortunately the movie is super dry and takes forever to get to anything happening that of any interest See, i was into this movie actually oh were you okay so so like well, i'll admit that that the first act of the movie is is indeed dry and weak uh it took a while before I realized who the main characters really were, and it took a bit before I realized that they were already in the middle of the planning stages. Like, the disc, uh, the DVD cover lies. This is not The Great Escape. This is far more in line with a movie like The Illusionist than it is with that, where it's very slow and understated. But the one thing that sets this apart from all the other Prison Break movies I've ever seen is... For all that I agree, it would have been cooler if they were real friends. All of the characters are legitimately passionate about getting out there and getting back into the fight. And even the prison break itself isn't so much about escaping prison. It's about going, no, you can't hold us. Yeah. Uh, making a political statement. And every time you watch one of these movies, it's always... You know, the main character is the reluctant hero who doesn't want to get involved and just wants to do his time. And it's a bunch of people who are burnt out by the outside world and are just being quietly, just quietly dying. Whereas here, everyone is, no, I need to get out there and I need to help fight for independence of Ireland. Yeah. That that angle of it pulled me through the movie. Well, I mean... It's stuff that I'm interested in. It just wasn't saying it interestingly for my, for me. I've certainly seen much better films about the IRA. I mean, what's the uh, Michael Clayton? I believe is the all time best one. The one with Liam Neeson. No, Michael Clayton is the one about the lawyer. No, what am I thinking of? Uh, the know. one where he's like Liam Neeson's like one of the main a big guy in the IRA. I can't remember. Yeah. You say it has Michael in the title, but I can't remember. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, it's one of those that's considered to be like one of the great IRA films. I will admit, as much as I enjoyed this movie, I would have had more fun with a documentary about this event. Mm-hmm. And once again, I want to know more about what exactly was happening. This clearly is a very politically complex situation that was happening in this part of the world, which we 
don't generally think of as like a hot brand part of the world, English, England and Ireland, which but very much was I for think a it's while. Only because we're in America and yeah. it doesn't escape the you know the curtain that they put over the news about these kinds of events. I would love to know more. I just didn't feel like this film is so focused on this one particular thing that it only makes oblique references to super important shit that was going on on the outside that was probably more relevant than anything in the story. Um, It's okay for me. I like the performances a lot. It just didn't drag me into it. I can see that. Everything I liked about this was just really experiencing the day-to-day life of these people, which, as I said... A documentary about this would have been more entertaining, there's, but I still enjoyed it. There's an audio commentary from the director. Um, there is a short film from the same director from 1997 called 81 that runs about 30 minutes about a 1981 hunger strike from the point of view of a French TV crew. Uh, and then a couple trailers for other things. Like I said, I wanted this to be good. I was actually very excited to get it, and I found that I was just kind of losing interest as it went on myself. <laughs> but uh, next up, and honestly, probably the single title I was most excited to get this week, like so I've never seen it, is Heroes Shed No Tears. Because <laughs> I'm like I'm a big old-school Chinese film fan buff, and John Woo was one of my entry points into all of this. Yep. And one of those movies that we just didn't have access to, but I knew about from reading in like fanzines, was Heroes Shed No Tears. This came out in 1986, <clears throat> before Wu had come out to doing his, you know, his really big breakout films, the ones that made him John Woo, like Bullet in the Head and well, The Killer and, and Hard Boiled. It, and it's that weird movie where you can see he's breaking away from his, believe it or not, comedic roots, because he came early on from doing a bunch of screwball Chinese comedies to going to what he eventually became, which is the guy who kind of redefined action movies throughout the world. It's John Woo making an exploitation film, basically. To some degree. I mean, so, all right. There's a lot of weirdness that went on with this movie behind the scenes, partially because you watch it and there's some very uncomfortable sort of rapey sex scenes and some very like not funny screwball comedy scenes. And John Woo didn't do those scenes or have anything to do with them at all. They were put in after the fact by another director, by the production company of the film in post. They were like, (laughs) no, the people want to see John Woo's name is associated with comedy and we want to make this kind of more sexy and we want more comedy. So they inserted all. So it's funny. I will. the, The sex scene is terrible. It's, it's ridiculous. It's laughably bad. I liked the comedy. <laughs> I was actually laughing. There was one or two comedy sequences I thought were okay. I, I will say, though, every time either the sex scene happens or the comedy bits happens, it's plot, 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 and then, boop, we stop for five minutes to watch a comedy routine and then cut back into the plot. It's very jarring. <laughs> so we followed the lead character played by Eddie Coe, who, if you don't know the name, it's understandable. I mean, he was, he's been all but entirely just a Chinese movie actor, but he has been in well, a, like a hundred fucking Chinese he, movies. He, he worked with the John Woo a bit. He worked with Johnny Toe a lot, yeah. a lot, which is where I saw him. He was in like The Sword, The Postman Strikes Back, uh, Mission. Uh, uh, the, the Mission, uh, Lone Ninja Warrior. Oh, I, th- I um, thought of an American movie he's in. He is in The Martian. 
Yes, he's in the Martian. He's the, he's, in, he's the elder Chinese man who gives them the additional rocket. In the prime period in the 90s, he was in The East is Red, The Bride with the White Hair, and The Bride with the White Hair 2, Executioners, Masters of, Master of Zen, Rumble in the Bronx. He was in Lethal Weapon 4. <laughs> you know, he's been in a lot. And when you watch this movie more than... And I've seen all these films. This is the one where I get why this guy was like a marquee star where you're like, dude, you are totally the lead of this film, <laughs> which is interesting because I think he has four lines in the entire movie. Yeah. But his like, whole job is to be Rambo basically. Yeah. Well, so, the, so I was watching this movie with my wife and with our au pair who is from China. And this is actually the language she speaks. She's watched a lot of John Woo movies. Oh, no when she was younger. So she was really excited to be able to sit down and watch an actual Chinese movie. I made it 10 minutes in and I turned to my wife and her and was like, so this is Chinese commando, right? Like, pretty much. Th- th- this is what this is. And then, yeah, that's what this is. If you like totally. commando, this is your movie. No, I couldn't agree more. Or like, I kept thinking this is Chinese, but better missing an action too. Okay. <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, it's, 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 it's much better than the missing an action films with Chuck Norris, which are fucking terrible. But because John Woo is just starting to figure out how to be the master, how to reinvent action movies. And it's gory and it's ridiculously over the top violent. Uh, all right. So the story, the Thai government has hired this group of Chinese mercenaries to capture a drug lord from the middle of the golden triangle near the Vietnamese border with La- Laos. So they capture him in the first scene of the film, and the whole rest of the film is them on the run while all of his mercenary, while all his men are trying to film free him, which end up in a weird sort of relationship with, for some reason, a really, really fervently. No, you broke my rules, so fuck you, guy who works on the border of countries who really shouldn't have a dog in this fight at all, who becomes the main villain of the film. Well, it, uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, they it, go. It, it becomes a revenge movie for yeah, him. For him. Yeah. It's like for the antagonist, it's like, I'm going to kill all these guys. I don't give a shit about your politics. I well, just want to kill and this there's guy. There's also a group of locals who are kind of ninjas, basically, yeah. who show up. Yeah, yeah, he hires or or blackmails, blackmails a group of like super badasses, which it honestly doesn't matter, man. Like the story really doesn't matter. I spent half the movie trying to figure out what military all of these guys work for before I finally just went. You know what? It really doesn't matter at all. It's just a fun, dumb action movie, but it's really good. It, it is super fun, and it's occasionally. I can't not hold it in comparison to his masterpieces. You know, I mean, the killer, hard boiled and bullet in the head are his three, like, unassailable masterpieces for my money. And especially bullet in the head, which also is sort of, is a war movie. I'm like, this is so not as good as those movies. I mean, like you said, it's commando, but when you're watching it, in the viewpoint of it, expect a really great Chinese version of Commando. Yeah. It's way fun. Yeah, that's the way to approach this. Don't approach this going, this is another masterclass film from the action director of those movies. Because this was his first bullet, bullet ballet or what? Yeah. This is his first shoot 'em up movie. And he clearly hasn't quite gotten the camera work down yet that he's famous for. And like you said, you can see the dabbles in here, Yeah, but this is a great eighties action film. If you compare it to the likes of commando or tango and cash or those kinds of it's movies, it's not boring at all. It is phenomenal. It's just not as good as hard boiled. You're going to be, is, 
that's not bad. Yeah, you're going to be deeply entertained if that's your type of movie. Yeah, no question. And it's nice that as somebody who was always trying to track down these type of films, and this was just unavailable here, even at like our local like super obscure get get all the most super obscure movie store that I would get all these other Chinese films from. They couldn't get this. It didn't exist. There was no English language version of this available. This is from a brand new 2K scan. So it looks pretty good overall. Yeah, uh, I was impressed. Yeah. Um, and there's you can watch this in English, Cantonese, or Mandarin. Not that most of the dialogue is... You could watch this whole film silent and it yeah, would be the, fine. This would be like the Iceman movie that we covered where yeah. you don't really need subtitles because except for the comedy bits, there's not really dialogue. And it's one of those, it's not just man on a mission, it's men on a mission, which helps. I mean, it's a whole group of people and they all have their own sort of vaguely either comedic or tough guy aspects about them and their relationships. And that's fun to watch play out. Right. I mean, there's an extended sequence that goes on way too long with two of the guys going to go gamble in a local village that honestly is kind of like, why is this even happening? I mean, you're right. That's one of those scenes where the movie stops dead. Yeah. But I laughed the whole way through because it's two characters and I think three times in the movie, they stop the movie for a sequence with them and none of the other characters are around. It's clear they did it in post and it was still funny. I still, <laughs> the actors were charismatic enough to pull it through for me. I, I, I see what you're saying. I just still at the same time was it like, just, at that point, can we please go back to the commando the stuff? Movie. Um, and once again, Eddie Coe, I mean, you're going to want to go watch other movies with this guy afterwards. He's go so... The mission. the mission is fucking amazing. He's so iconic so, in this. Sorry, uh, I had to throw that out there. Fair, fair. <laughs> uh, there is one bonus feature, or I'm sorry, there's one main bonus feature, was a 20-minute interview with Eddie Coe, which I actually watched. He doesn't speak any English, uh, or at least none on this extra feature, where, uh, so it's subtitle where he speaks about his whole experience of this, and it actually is funny. Um, one of the best parts is where he talks about like Wu was very unsatisfied with the way that all that the gunfire sequences were going. And so the local crew was like, yeah, it's because you're using blanks. You should use live ammo. And he did. He switched it. And so when you see this, they're firing live ammo in all these scenes. And they're just like, what the fuck? Apparently they just were like, you know what? Just, just shoot above. Just shoot above them. Yeah. I was like, that's insane. That would never happen in an American film. And he film. tells a cool story about he didn't move fast enough in one scene. And so his um, he had some uh, squibs pop, and they actually pumped holes into his leg. Yep. Yeah, it's a fun, it's a fun extra. It's sad there's not a lot more stuff there, because yeah. this is like, like I said, a kind of a lost gem of Chinese well, like, like film. Anytime we get movies like this that are basically lost in America, I'm just grateful to have a transfer. Oh, yeah. Like that, that, thank you. I'm happy as hell to have yeah. this in my collection now. It's like one of those always wanted it, I, I finally agree. got it. This is like the illusionist would have been this if I didn't already own it. But this is one of those movies that I'm like, okay, I am going to now go out and buy this. Can I just for a second, in case film movement is listening, who has largely been putting out little indie dramas that sometimes have touches of genre to them, but are doing a lot mainly new stuff. And they, for a while, have had a period of putting out stuff that has been like 
like 20 years ago was a hit at one film festival in like Australia or something type of things where you're like, okay, sure. There was a, there's a mild audience or maybe this is important in the context of the bigger things. They, them putting out Hero Shed No Tears on a Blu-ray thing is a, a really big deal. Like, Nobody is putting out the classic Chinese films right now. Like, Wellgo is doing great at putting out the new stuff. Nobody is re-releasing all the old classic stuff. Like, there's no good versions of the Mr. Vampire films or the classic Jackie Chan films or even, like, nobody's even... There should have been eight re-releases of Hard Boiled in the last two years by now. And there's not. And that's, like, one of the top of the tops. Like, nobody is concerned with this. All the Stephen Chow movies. The Stephen Chow films. Why why hasn't From Beijing From Love and The God of Cookery gotten a re-release? I just saw a scene from From Beijing With Love. Damn it! I want to watch that movie so bad. Yeah, I've I've only seen parts of it. Yeah, yeah, because that was all there was. You know, like why are these movies not coming out? And them doing this film movement. If you're listening, hey, this is the thing. This is a niche no one else has. Fucking follow it. I want to see Encounters of the Spooky Kind one and two. I want to see the whole Mister Vampire series in one giant fucking box set. God of Cookery, the God of Cookery, the Stephen, you know, like you said, the Stephen Chow films. I want to see. Uh, God, there's so many. I want to see the Tai Chi Master from yeah. with Jet Li. I'm, you know, sort of Shaolin. Put that 80s, 90s stuff out that has no good release available. So good. Fong Se Yuck one and two. Put that shit out. Come on, get with it. All right, so let's move on to something else, which is, I think, one of the best Westerns ever made. And I'm not talking about a hotel. (laughs) I'm talking about Lonesome Dove. Based on the classic Larry McMurtry novel, who is definitely one of the defining Western novelists of the 20th century, uh, also did contemporary Texas stuff, or at least contemporary in his time, which was the 60s. This was actually, at one point, something that John Ford was talking about directing with John Wayne in it, weirdly, and was talked out of doing. I'm not sure why. I was trying to find, I saw several things that referenced that that happened, that this came so close to production with that, which is like the ultimate Western team-up, right? Yeah. Uh, either Ford or Hawks with Wayne never happened. I was like, but why didn't it happen? I'm not clear. All I know is that when they finally put it out, it was a uh, a um a a mini series uh, that came out on television, which I know it was in the eighties. Everybody's like, ugh, eighties televisions miniseries generally, even if they were great at the time, just feel so dated and don't hold up. Well, the good news is Lonesome Dove actually kind of does, which I'm so glad to hear you say that because so uh, I didn't get to watch this for this episode and. I've never seen Lonesome Dove. My only connection to it is when I was a kid, my dad actually recorded it off TV. Oh, everybody's dad and did. <laughs> my dad didn't record movies. Like He was like, whatever. He didn't care. He, he watched what I was into, and that made him happy. That and Godzilla. So the fact that he recorded Lonesome Dove was huge. It well, makes me so happy that this holds up. Well, Mill Creek has re-released this, and it's the first time in a long time this has been re-released. I, I had an old DVD set of this from like 10 years ago. Uh, and this is, bonus features-wise, there's not nothing new. It's just those bonus features from that, and that's fine. But it's a significantly upgraded copy visually of it, put in a really super nice steel book, which is cool. Um, 
it's four movies, basically, is what Lonesome Dub is. It's four episodes that are about an hour and a half long of this journey of uh, Captain Augustus Gus McRae, played by the uh, the the legendary Robert Duvall, and his best friend, his cranky best friend, Captain Woodrow F. McCall, Tommy Lee Jones. They're both, when this starts, it's kind of like the beginning of the, like, the civilization of the Wild West, and they're living in this small town called Lonesome Dove, and they're ex-legendary Texas Rangers who are, like, very famous for their exploits, but they've been, like, raising, they've been working on a farm, and both of them are kind of not really happy where they've ended up on this farm. Like, they're raising pigs, and much is made out of the fact that's no good job for a Texas Ranger. And they, at one point, decide, after a series of events, they decide, we're going to Montana. And one of the, the reasons for that is because Montana is one of those that's just starting to be settled. It's still filled with, like, Native Americans who are wild, and they kind of miss that. They're like, oh, I'm too old to be fighting Indians. You're like, dude, you're dying to be fighting Indians. <laughs> you, you, you don't want to die that, like, on, of, like, just natural causes. They're going through their three-quarter life crisis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they have a whole, there's a whole crew of people around them, one of which is a young Ricky Schroeder, who they call Newt, who everybody loves. He's, like, the kid who's, like, so unassailably nice that he's almost like a Mary Sue of a kid. Which I'm going to assume that he doesn't make it through the series based on that character description. Believe it or not, he does. Oh. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> yeah, there is a tragic end to another young person at the end of the first episode, which is much has been made out of the fact that at the time it was like tear-inducing and now it's just ridiculously silly to watch. <laughs> I mean, if anything, any problems with this whole series take place in the first first episode, first movie of it, there's some wonky effects work. It's the only episode of the whole series that there's any effects work. There's like, oh, there's a hurricane on the way that looks fucking terrible. And there's a sequence with a bunch of snakes in the water that are just kind of like, feels like you can see extras throwing rubber snakes on top of an actor. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... That's so you've got Danny Glover as a uh, a former scout for the Texas Ranger Joshua Dietz, who full credit to a film coming out in the eighties, all but no reference at all to anybody judging him based on the color of his skin. He yeah. is a part of the team. Period. End of story. And like everybody's like, no, Dietz is like one of the best guys we've That's ever awesome. known. And it's pretty amazing. There's like one moment where someone uses the N-word against him and that guy gets his ass beat down. <laughs> uh, there's a local uh, prostitute played by Diane Lane who's the only prostitute in their small town who's Ooh, who is young and like so hot. Oh my god, young Diane Lane is like oh, yeah. fucking stunning. And uh, not Sam Elliott, which I have thought for the last 20 years. Not Sam Elliott, although he would have fit right in. I legitimately thought Robert Duvall was Sam Elliott nope. since I was four. They both have the same mustache. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, but yeah, she's the prostitute that they end up taking along on this voyage. Uh, Robert Urich plays Jake Spoon, former tech, the younger Texas Ranger, comes along with them, but he kind of sets up this whole subplot about how uh, he was in another town. He's kind of a wild guy. He's the wild card guy where he was trying to take down a dude and accidentally killed another dude and everything's still a little bit in question. And so in that town... We get the subplot with Chris Cooper, another fantastic A-list actor who is sent out after him, even though he doesn't want to do this at all. 
<laughs> you know, because he has a new wife and kid uh, on the way. He's like, ugh, okay. But there's a local powerful woman in the town who was married to the guy who was who was killed. Who's like, you better go get him. Bring him back for trial. <laughs> Those stories kind of intersect. The weaker part of the story is admittedly that subplot. You could tell this whole, you could lose a whole episode and not feel like you were missing anything on the whole. Huh. Like t- his whole story, you could have cut out of here and not feel like it was really that missing. But there's other people like DB Sweeney, uh, uh, plays a big role in here. Sort of the, the younger member of the crew, uh, for Robert Duvall's crew is kind of a firebrand. He's kind of a little bit like the guy they got to keep going. Come on, man. Stop. <laughs> we get it. You're young, but stop being like, stop being young. <laughs> yeah. Stop being young. Stop being so emotional. Angelica Houston. Plays a big role in the second two episodes of this. Um, William Sanderson, Steve Buscemi, an early Steve Buscemi oh, role. He's in several uh, like right. moments of this. I gotta watch this now. <laughs> it's kind of a masterpiece of a western. I'll be honest, it really is. It's it's just so engaging, and this is like one of those things on the list of like if you consider yourself like so masculine that you like worry about people judging you about your masculinity. This is officially a free card to openly weep. Oh, it's like some dove. Like Rudy. Yeah. yeah. Or, or Terminator 2. Yeah. It's a guy yeah. cry movie. You, you get a guy cry movie <laughs> card for this. If you're one of those people, I mean, I cry at everything. So oh, yeah. whatever. Shit, but like, yeah, I, I cry just because I recognize something I, I like. I cried watching a kid's cartoon this morning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't care. I'll tell you. I'm not. I, in an old school masculinity, I will not even rank. But yeah. if you're one of those people that means something to, it's fine. You get a free pass on Lonesome Dove. And believe me, it will give you plenty of opportunities to be really. <laughs> upset. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Uh, I loved rewatching this, and I did. I went back and rewatched At first, I was like, well, I'll just watch the first episode, get a feel for it again, and I just watched all four of them. I was like, god damn it, this is so good! I love it! Uh, so, like I said, there's there's nothing um, really extra here. Uh, uh, oh, actually, I, I could be wrong. Actually, there might be one new extra... Uh, I don't know. There, but for Mill Creek, which never did this until recently, it comes with a digital copy, mm-hmm. which is super great because for the longest time they were sort of like the ultimate cheapness and now they have a new digital copy oh, system going. So it was like. That has become surprisingly huge with me lately. Ever since I've digitized most of my movies, yeah. it's nice to have it. It's there. just convenient because you're like yeah. lying on the couch, like, I want to watch some. I don't even know what. It's so much easier than standing up and looking at your shelf to just scan. Well, and it's, it's nice to be able to watch your collection remotely too. You're not wrong. Well, uh, so once again, like we did last time, we're going to break this up into two episodes because we're at 50 minutes, if that's okay with you. That's okay with you. And my God, look at my cat being a total slut. Dude, I took a picture. Did you? Yeah. A cat is literally lying there like, come fuck me. Yeah. <laughs> Legs spread and everything. You know, I might have to get that picture from you just to put on up with this post. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> She's like, yeah, baby, you know you want some of this. Anyway, we'll be back with such titles as American Horror Project Volume 2, which is complicated to say the least, with the brand new Mill Creek re-release of Mothra, which Ooh. is... Um, a film I have very mixed feelings about. Sorry, no, Matt Frank. I, I'll agree. <laughs> uh, with Divorced Dad, which is one of the oddest comedy things I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, with Gotham Season 5. Woo-woo. 
I don't know. I can't remember. I remember you said no, you were watching I, Gotham. I, I, I like Gotham, but it's one of those shows where I, I recently went back to try, and I made it halfway through an episode and went, you know, I'm really not in the mood for this style, because it, it's shot like a CW show, and so yeah. like it just is, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's a very much a, a flavor. We'll save it for the review. Yeah. And then finally with Weird Science, which is the most argued about John Hughes film of all his films in terms of his problematicness, its quality, and I'm going to come on and defend it. I, I'm i going to come on and be back and forth on it. <laughs> <laughs> so you will listen to us shortly. Yeah. Follow up with more. Oh, and I guess for this episode we can we can say that the illusionist is the pick of the week. Yeah, there we go. Ah. Uh.